Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Sarah Dowdy. And I'm Dublina Chakraborty. And one of the funniest things about this podcast is when listeners seem to suddenly all be on the same wavelength. I mean, sometimes they know what we're about to research, which is super weird. Or what we're about to record, which is really weird. Yeah, what we're working on. You get a request for a topic the very same day you are researching and recording it. Yeah. Really strange. But late this spring, I received... A suggestion, a listener suggestion, one that was really fascinating, one that was very unusual sounding. It was from a listener named Jenny, and the subject line of this suggestion was the patron saint of transvestites. Okay, so that's enough to catch your attention right there. But the email went on to outline the life of the Chevalier Dion, who was a French soldier, spy, and diplomat. About a month after that, and this is what I'm talking about when I'm saying listeners being in the same wavelength, we got another vote for the seemingly obscure Chevalier, this time from listener Marianne, and then another just a few days after that from Todd. Maybe they're all friends. <laughs> I know, they were all friends. That Well, now people know the secret how they to do, do this. <laughs> okay. um, but it seemed that a portrait of this chevalier had recently emerged. The sitter had long been misidentified as a woman, and it was causing a bit of a stir in the art world, or at least that's what one of them later told me when she was explaining how so many people were thinking of the same person at the same time. Right. So not long after they'd written, the Chevalier story started making international news when London's National Portrait Gallery announced that it had acquired this portrait, the very first oil painting in their collection of a man in women's clothing. But like most art we discuss on the show, the portrait has its own mysterious backstory, which we're going to discuss in a second episode. But first, we need to talk about the Chevalier's own fascinating life, which involves several things, including a nosy Madame de Pompadour, who, of course, we've had a podcast on before. Uh, blackmail is another thing that this involves, and also something called the King's Secret, and also the most outrageous immunity deal you've ever heard of. So plenty to come. Truly outrageous. But our story starts in 1728 in Tonnerre, Burgundy. And our subject's name, we're only going to do the full thing one time because this guy Thank has goodness. so many names. He was born Charles Genevieve Louis Auguste André Timothée Dion de Beaumont. So fortunately for us, he later becomes just the Chevalier, and we'll mostly be calling him Dion. But his family was noble, but they were also very poor, kind of like a lot of the subjects we talk about, it seems, noble but poor. So he knew that he was going to have to work for a living, find some kind of patronage, preferably in government service. And he, fortunately for him, he was a very good student, very bright, got a great education, moved to Paris for schooling. Once he was done, he he stayed put, stayed in Paris, and started publishing books on royal finance and modern politics before finally getting that first government position, also in finance, and then eventually becoming a royal censor. So, of course, I mean, that's a pretty self-explanatory job, but he would have to look through books, look through publications, uh, figure out if anything was inappropriate appropriate before they were printed. Um, I have to wonder, he later became a 
a very um, enthusiastic book collector. <laughs> I have to wonder if some of that dates to being a royal censor. But then finally, after that job, he entered diplomatic service, and he was from there shipped off to Russia to work under a Scotsman named Chevalier Douglas. So depending on the source, this is where some of that dressing in women's clothes stuff starts to come up. According to the National Portrait Gallery, he was known to attend cross-dressing balls abroad. And according to an Art Daily article, Dale even disguised himself as a woman in an official capacity, serving Empress Elizabeth of Russia as a maid of honor. But according to Jonathan Conlon in History Today, while he was considered somewhat androgynous, there was no indication of Dale dressing in women's clothing at this time. So a murky part of his history, to say the least. One of many. So regardless, Dayan and Douglas were in Russia on very special business. In addition to their public diplomatic function, they were a small but important piece of something called Le Secret du Roi, or the King's Secret. So just to give you a little background on this, Louis XV of France, who, of course, is one of our favorite bourbon subjects, we've covered him before, he, of course, had a public foreign policy of his own, which was executed by his foreign minister. But beginning in the 1740s, he also had the secondary secret foreign policy, the aim of which was to place his cousin, the Prince de Conti, on the Polish throne. So privately, Louis' agents for the secret worked to achieve this, while publicly, Louis claimed this wasn't his goal at all. As a party to the secret, one of Douglas's tasks in Russia was to help gain the support of Empress Elizabeth for Conti's candidacy, something Dayan, as Douglas's secretary, would have also been involved in. So I know this seems like a lot of backstory on 1740s politics, especially for a tale that ultimately takes place in the 1770s, but it's important because of the secret, clearly. (laughs) Even though Louis' plan to place his cousin Conti on the Polish throne didn't ultimately work out, he didn't just go ahead and scrap that entire network, the entire secret network that had been established to make it happen. He must have thought, all right, well, maybe I can accomplish some other things with my secret dual foreign policy. And It's really easy to imagine how Louis' foreign policy became pretty muddled and confused pretty quickly because, for one thing, his actual ministers, like his foreign minister, did not know about the secret. The agenda of secret agents was usually opposite that of public policy, like it was for the the placing the cousin on the throne attempt. And then finally, and this is kind of the real kicker, many of the agents of Lysocrat also had legitimate jobs in the foreign service, like Dale, for example. So, I mean, you have double agents who are both working, you know, they're working for Louis either way you cut it, but working to achieve different aims. So as one very simplified example of the type of disconnect we're talking about here, Louis had agents in Le Secret pursue anti-Austrian alliances with Sweden, Prussia, Turkey, and Poland, but then abandon that plan to ally himself with Austria officially. So just completely opposite of, of, you know, completely opposing ideas here. That alliance, which we talked about a bit in the Madame de Pompadour episode, ended up driving Louis into the disastrous Seven Years' War against Great Britain and Prussia. 
This, by the way, was a shining moment for Dayon, not some, for some super covert spying or business related to Le Secret. He was a soldier and one who had fought really bravely at the Battle of Willinghausen and several other engagements. And that's something to kind of keep in mind as we as we talk about Dayon, especially in the next episode. But it was after the Seven Years' War was over that the secret had arguably the biggest task in its 20-year existence, and that was to get revenge on Great Britain. And, of course, at this point, publicly, France was in disgrace. It had lost many of its colonial possessions. It lost a lot of money, prestige in Central Europe. So clearly, the official line was one of reconciliation with Great Britain. We cannot afford to go back to war. We need to rebuild the country's navy. We need to refill its coffers. Certainly not get revenge and renew war. At least that's what Louis' foreign minister, the Comte de Prolon, thought that France was trying to accomplish. Dale, however, knew there was a whole other game going on. And by 1762, when the war was sort of winding down to a close, his star was really rising, both inside his his uh, role with the secret and outside in his official role as a diplomat. That's true. Uh, Prolon appointed him secretary to the ambassador to London to help negotiate peace and to negotiate the war's end. And while he didn't play a large part in the talks, Dayon did carry the treaty back to Versailles, which was a high honor from George III of Great Britain. The next year, he became Chevalier while he was inducted into the Order of St. Louis, which was one of France's highest honors. And shortly after that, he was made a minister to Great Britain. And then finally, as a party to Le Secret, he was given a super hush-hush task, and that was to plan for an armed invasion of Great Britain, specifically to oversee the secret agents who were scouting out the British coastline for landing spots. So... On one hand, he's making peace on, on, on the public side of things. And on the other hand, he's planning an armed invasion. Seems like it would be difficult <laughs> to do. To say the least. That's what spies do anyway, and that's sort of what he is in this case. So it seemed, though, that the Chevalier's public and private careers in diplomacy were proceeding quite well. I mean, either way, it sounds like he's going to be one of the main guys on the in the diplomatic stage between France and Great Britain. And then Madame de Pompadour has to come into the picture and mess up things for him entirely. Like she does. <laughs> like she does sometimes. If you remember from the show that we did on Madame de Pompadour, Louis XV's mistress, of course, this post-war period was a really bad time for her because by the 1750s, she'd gotten pretty heavily involved in France's politics, enough that Voltaire even jokingly referred to her as France's prime minister. And so her faction, and, and with her own influence too, she'd strongly encourage Louis to ally himself with Austria. And that, of course, was an alliance that eventually led to war. And that war led to disgrace for France, you know, all of the, all of the money and possessions we've already talked about. So the public really hated Madame de Pompadour at this point and published cruel pamphlets about her cartoons, blaming her for the war. And so even though she sort of stepped back from some of her political responsibilities at this point, I mean, she really would have had to. She also didn't leave court. She didn't just retire from public life. And on June 10th, 
1763, Madame de Pompadour stole the king's keys to his own private papers, poked around in his personal files that were hidden in his private rooms, maybe hoping to find something that could restore her influence. She did find something pretty important, and that was, of course, evidence of the secret. As we already know, Pompadour had plenty of her own friends, even a contingent in the government. And since they were at this point really afraid that she was falling out of the king's favor, they started just frantically trying to figure out what was behind Lysacret. Plus, they had to have been really curious. I mean, what if you had spent your career in in service to Louis and you were realizing he might have this entire other foreign policy set up. Unfortunately, though, for our Chevalier, their main focus, the main focus of their investigation, trying to get to the bottom of this, was what was this guy, the Chevalier Dion, really doing in London? So this is the end of the first part of this episode. Next time, we're going to talk about what happens as Pompadour's people move in and the Chevalier Dion refuses to back down gracefully. What he does next is really scandalous and brands him as a rogue spy to Louis and his ministers who are in the know. So with the secret security at stake, a multi-year showdown between the monarch and spy somehow results in a really strange turn of events, which we've kind of hinted at, (laughs) a cap and gown for Dion and an entire new identity as a woman. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> so that will be next time. You'll have to wait just like um, Madame de Pompadour's people did. I guess just like all of France did, having to wait to see what, what happens, unless you just go read about it and spoil the surprise. So you have some listener mail for us, Sarah? I do. And clearly I was immensely entertained by the... <laughs> Emails we got regarding turnips <laughs> last time. Um, we're getting some good ideas. We I are have to say we're getting. I um, might not get a pumpkin next year. Well, I might get some turnips. You might have nine fingers then next <laughs> post Halloween. That's being generous. <laughs> I don't you're know. Overestimating my knife skills. <laughs> well, actually, so far we haven't heard any really scary turnip carving stories, but I just thought I would share a few more because these really are awesome. One guy we even inspired him to carve turnips this year. He said he's been listening listening for a long time. This is listener Eric, and he gave some tips on the turnip carving process. But since, you know, we've already gone through some of those suggestions, I thought I would share the result because he had pretty amazing sounding results. He said, for Halloween, I lit the turnip lanterns with those little electric tea lights and placed them along the front walk. Sadly, only a few trick-or-treaters came to my neighborhood this year, but... For those that did, the turnip lanterns made it clear that mine was the house to come to. One trick-or-treater gushed, quote, Your mini pumpkins are amazing as I open the door. <laughs> I don't know. I like that kind of response from yeah. trick-or-treaters. Uh, so thank you, Eric, for, for sharing this. And I also liked, he wrote a little note about how um, initially he listened to the podcast based only on the topics that sounded interesting to him. And this is so flattering, but he said that soon enough he figured out that he enjoyed 
all the episodes, even if the topic didn't immediately appeal to him and, and listed McCarthyism as a as an example of that, something that had, quote, creeped him out, <laughs> but uh, decided to give it a go and found it to be something really interesting. I think that's actually the case uh, for us, too, really. I mean, we try to choose ones that interest us somewhat, at least going right. into them. But um, sometimes you're not thinking you're really going to get into a topic, but then something clicks and it just becomes pretty fascinating. So the other note we got, this one is not turnip related, but it's pretty close. It's from listener Rebecca. And she wrote to say, still loving listening to your podcast from the collection stores on the Natural History Museum in Dublin. And I thought I would weigh in on the Halloween discussions. And she even did Halloween with the apostrophe in it. Pretty classy. She wrote, I really did have to giggle at the listener mail about carving turnips for Irish English Halloween. I grew up in the 1980s and 90s, and I don't remember pumpkins being easily got, but we didn't opt for turnips either. Where I grew up in Ireland, one of the main crops was sugar beet. In Carlotown, there was a big sugar factory that only closed down a few years ago, and every autumn the roads would be littered with beets that had fallen from the tractor trailers during the campaign, which she said that's the year, or sorry, that's the word that they use for the harvest and delivery period. She said that her uncle grew sugar beet as a good source of fodder for his animals. I don't remember ever being allowed to carve one myself, but every year someone in my class would be brave enough. So that's going to be... Lena, clearly, next year, trying to carve beets. <laughs> I don't know. If you had an accident with beets, nobody would know, too, because there'd already be, like, red beet juice everywhere. They'd know. <laughs> no. I'd make sure they knew. <laughs> um, so it's it's fun. We've also heard from a few people who tried baking soul cakes, too. Um, everybody's trying new Halloween traditions, apparently, thanks to, thanks to some of these old-timey ideas. Very fun. Well, if you have any more ideas for us that you would like us to perhaps try or would like to caution us against trying <laughs> in case we're not very good with sharp objects, you can write to us at historypodcast at discovery.com. We're also on Facebook, and you can look us up on Twitter at Mist in History. And remember to, to uh, tune back in for our second part of the Chevalier's fascinating story. If you want to learn a little bit more about chevaliers in general, or knights as we might call them. We do have an article called How Knights Work, and you can find that by searching on our homepage at www.howstuffworks.com For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com